0: So let's hit the ground running. You'll notice that we are in part 13 of our Matthew series, which is going to carry us throughout into the new year. And I entitled today's message, Open Up How to Receive the Word of God. And I want to begin with something incredibly practical for you. And it's a challenge to you and a question, which is this What do you do to prep for church? Uh, here in leadership, we have to arrive here early and we do a whole bunch of stuff that kind of gets us in the groove It's not because we're super spiritual. It's because it's just how we designed it and it kind of forces us to be prepared and to be ready For example, Saturday nights before we ever launch the weekend services We pray back there as a team for 25 minute as a block. We just go back and we saturate ourselves in prayer. Well then also we're ma- meeting with people and talking with people before I start Sundays. I have a discipleship class that I run for an hour and a half where we're talking about the Lord way before I ever get in here. We're praying in that too. What that does is it prepares my heart so that by the time we get into singing in worship and by the time we get into studying the word of God, we end up being a bit more soaked in the Lord, and that allows us to engage. If you are coming in cold, you're completely checked out for the first, what, half of worship? Maybe even the whole thing? You finally lock in, last song? Okay, that's not going to cut it. You need to be able to find some way, either you make a rule in your car on the way in, listen, kids, wife, husband, we're fighting before we get in the car. All right, let's just fight now. All right, because once we get in the car, we're turning on worship tunes or whatever. I don't know what you need to do, but clearly you got to fit in fighting. I just say at least plan for it and schedule it on your planner so that way it's not an accident or no one's caught off guard. All right, so somehow, some way, there's got to be a way to prepare your heart that when you walk in here, you're ready to go from the moment we launch, because right when we start off, it's. Let's lift up the name of the Lord. And you're like, ah, I can't be there with you. Sorry, I'm still thinking about something else. Not good enough. We have to prepare our hearts to listen to the Lord. Now, in the old school days, they had what was called a call to prayer. And there was all this prep time built into the service. Now, we could do that, except for it would end up chopping out a lot of time in studying the Word. And I don't know if that's necessarily the best use of time. So the responsibility slides back to you and it says, if you want to get the most out of it, Make sure that you engage with the Lord before you get here. Uh, one challenge I'll throw at you is if you've ever used the word, I didn't get much out of that. That says a lot more about you than the service you attended. Okay, and I get, I understand that maybe you've been to a lot of different places and you go, well, the teachers are lame. Okay, there are lame teachers out there. I, I understand that. But Balaam got taught by a donkey. So if he had something to say for God, It's probably your fault you didn't get anything out of it, all right? doesn't really matter who's bringing the message. It's that God has something to say, and when we're worshiping God in song, you know, I didn't really like the music. You know what? That's something that you need to grow up in. I understand it's not your favorite style. I understand it's not your favorite stuff. Oh, the songs are too old. Songs are too new. Songs are too fast. Songs are too slow. We get all the complaints in the world. I'm getting them constantly, all right? Bottom line is, this isn't for you! This is for Jesus! Let it go! You're supposed to be focusing on the Lord. You're to bring a sacrifice. This isn't for you, right? So, it is very difficult when it is not your style and it's not familiar. You guys, there's a lot of times I've been to high school worship services, okay? When you go to a high school worship service and it's all over the map and everything's crazy and it's blasting at you, it's hard to worship. Well, that's how half of us feel in here, okay? It's very difficult to be in a different environment. You have to end up moving through that and saying, you know what, Lord? This isn't exactly my favorite song. It's not exactly my favorite style. I'd much rather sing this or I'd much rather sing this. I don't want to sing Maranatha. I don't want to sing modern. I don't want to sing hymns, whatever you feel like you don't want to sing. But we definitely need to bring something to the Lord. He's listening, and we're supposed to be performing for Him. So let's let's try to focus on that. Because here's the deal. Look at the fill-in-the-blank in in front of you. By the way, that's called a tangent. Um, On the the fill-in-the-blank in front of you, I don't know where I went off on that. I didn't beat up anybody last night, so apparently I'm bent this morning, and you guys got it. Uh, The fill in the blank is this. The condition of your heart affects your vision of the world. The condition of your heart affects your vision of the world. Excuse me, of the word and the world. You can do it either way, but I want to focus on the word today. Word, not world. Cut out that L. We're about to read seven parables. And Jesus is going to be dishing out information on the kingdom of God really, really fast. And some people are going to get it. And some people aren't going to get it in Scripture. He's going to talk about people that are hard-hearted and people that are soft-hearted, people that can receive the Word, people that don't receive the Word. The condition of your heart matters all the way across the board. Last thing I'll say before we dive into this passage is that I didn't mention a very significant event last week, which was, remember we studied the, the story of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You guys remember that? All right. Something else occurred there very dramatically that I didn't take time to address. And that is, Jesus' ministry shifted. That's a watershed moment. What it was, was the senior leadership of Israel, the Jewish people, called Christ Satan. That's a big deal. From that point forward, everything adjusts. Now all of a sudden, Christ starts doing things he never did before. One of those is he begins to speak in more cryptic language. He begins to use... Parables for the first time. You'll see a bunch of different changes as we move forward. But that one event, when they said, We're on the opposite side of you, was a big deal. It was a moving paradigm shift in the whole scripture. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Let's get into this. Matthew 13, verse 1, page 690. In the Bible's handed to you, 690, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. It begins, let me just read the first two and a half verses, and we will pray for the word this morning. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we engage with your parables, may we be understanding that even when we see the meaning, may we engage with it and believe it and accept it. Persevere in it. Allow it to be real. But Lord, we do not want to be merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so we ask that the first place where we must begin is that you open it up to us that we can understand. Would you illuminate your word to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. This is the house where last week we left off. It was so jammed that his mom and his brothers tried to come say hi to him, and they couldn't even get in because of the crowds. So they sent somebody in. They said, hey, Jesus, your family's waiting for you. And he said, who are my family? Well, my disciples. And he made this very significant statement. After all that went down, he walked out of the house. The crowd followed him out. More joined him on the outside. And now he had to do something about it. So it says, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat, sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. That's called making a natural amphitheater. Uh, Nobody can see you. Nobody can hear you if you're on land. So what he would do is he would back up so no one could get close to him. It's good that he had buddies that were fishermen. They had boats. So he'd hang out in the boat. He'd back up from the land. Everyone would gather on the shore, and then he would begin to preach and teach. Now, you all know that water's a great conductor of sound, right? Everybody familiar with that? Where sometimes you'll be on a lake, and you can hear what's on the other side of the lake. That's because it's carrying it across the water very rapidly. So what he does is create a natural amphitheater and everybody can hear what he's teaching. He did this a lot. This was one of the times. Now, Matthew's about to give us seven parables. Why seven? Seven is a number of perfection in Scripture. What Matthew does, he does not tell you things in order. He does not tell you when Jesus said them. He compiles them together. And he said, let me just give you a sampling of seven parables to kind of give you a perfect picture of the totality of what he's teaching. Does that make sense? That's why he collected seven of them. We'll be going through them very rapidly. But what is a parable? Well, the greek it's two Greek words kind of shoved together, para and then bellow, and it means to throw alongside or cast alongside something. And what it means is you take something people do understand and throw it alongside a brand new truth. They can then match the two together and go, oh, I get it. That's what a parable is for. The point is, throw something they know against something they do not know, so that it would help them understand it. But parables are not allegories. You guys know the difference? In an allegory, everything in the story is supposed to relate to something else. All the details matter. Parables, details do not matter. There's one, usually one major thrust or one major point of the parable. You're supposed to grab it and go. Quit analyzing to the nth degree. It is not about the details. That's a different form of speech that you would use for that. It's not a parable. So a lot of times we make parables out to say something they don't really say. And that's not fair to the text. So let's just take a look at what the main point is and then move forward. So he begins with this saying a farmer went out to sow a seed as he was scattering the seed some fell along the path and the birds ate it up some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow but when the sun came up the plants were scorched and they withered because Luke says they had no moisture and Matthew says they had no root Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it, Luke says, and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred sixty or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's dissect this for a moment. Farmer. Likely, Jesus is pointing to a farmer, because Jesus always kind of pointed out stuff that was right in front of him. And even if he didn't, they live in an agricultural society. Everybody knows what a farmer does farmer goes out to sow a seed there was two ways to sow seed in that day one was the focused intensive method the other one's called the lazy method all right here's how it would work just like always everything is in rows okay so you're going down the row you have a sack in your arm of seed you scoop it in and just like you see a lot of people do today you cast seed that's the idea on both sides of the path as you're walking that's a bit more focused now if you don't want to do that, you either got to hurry or you can't carry the sack or there's another reason to do it. You put it on the back of a donkey, right? Donkey walks down the path and shimmies. Hey, back and forth as he's walking. You cut a hole in the bag and it dumps seed everywhere he walks. That's kind of the... Uh, I don't know, lazy way to do it, okay? Basically, you let him do the work for you. Now, you can imagine, one's a bit more specific, but still, you're throwing it out there and trying to cover a lot of distance. They didn't have big machinery, so you're trying to haul through this stuff and get it done. So a lot of seed is going to bounce everywhere. So he gives four analogies of where the seed might land. So he starts with, some fell on the pathway, Now, the way it worked in that world is that all the rows where something wasn't planted was a right-of-way for people to walk. So you can walk through other people's fields. That's not a problem as long as you don't step on their stuff. So you can walk through. Well, what that does is it beats it down as hard as asphalt. It's basically like just as bad as putting it on the road. So, of course, the seed's not going to germinate. It's not going to fall down in. It's not going to do anything. It's going to bounce on the top, and then what happens? The birds go right on. Wild bird food, I'm in. Yeah, they sweep in, bam, 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 bam. And they take it all up and nothing's ever going to grow. Then some, it says, fell on the rocky places. Now you would go, well, that's a stupid farmer to throw in a bunch of rocks. No, the rock is not on top. What it means is there are certain areas in the land where there is a limestone shelf underneath the ground. It's literally a layer of rock with only inches of dirt on top. So it can grow there. You can throw it on there, it will grow up, and because it's so shallow, the sun's beating on it, ricocheting off the rocks underneath, and it keeps it very warm, right? So you put a little bit of water on it, you can throw seed on it, it will spring up instantly because it's like, hey, this is a perfect place, but eventually it needs to do what? It needs to dig down and get more nutrients, but there's nowhere to go. So it hits rock bottom and, it's, and it gets burned up because it can't handle it, all right? Some of it, then what? It says, fell among the thorns. Now, Luke says that the thorns grew up with the seed. In other words, you couldn't see the thorns. They were actually still in the dirt. You didn't know it was bad dirt. So you sowed amongst them. They all grow up together. And as they're growing up together, the thorns choke it out over time. Does that make sense? And then, of course, some fell on good soil where it instantly began to produce a crop over time, 160, 30-fold. Now, the other gospel accounts focus only on the 100%, so apparently Matthew's in Mr. Negative Pants. Okay, anyway, moving on. Here we go. Now, the disciples are trying to figure out, what are you doing? I mean, now, what, now we're talking in riddles? You've always been so obvious and so clear. Why are we doing this parable thing? And they ask him, and he explains exactly why they're doing it. But in order to understand it, I grabbed Mark and Luke, all their accounts, shoved them together, and I will read as if they were all three speaking together to you. So wherever I deviate from your text, I am referring to Mark or Luke. It sounds like this. Mark's going to start us out. It says, When Jesus was alone, the twelve disciples and the others around him asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, "The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them." Now that sounds like exclusivity. It sounds a little bit like elitism. And you go, "I don't, I don't get it. What, Lord, you're just trying to be cryptic for no reason? I'm missing it." The word that Jesus uses in Greek there is mysterion, and you'd go, "Okay, it means mystery." Yeah, but there's something special you need to know. In that day and age, there were what were called mystery religions. And what they were, were kind of like little groups where they had secret codes and secret handshakes. And I understood what's going on, but you don't know what I'm doing. And we have our own way of doing things. We have rituals. And the more and more you get in on the inner circle, the more we can tell you deep truths. And then you can ascend into higher knowledge. That was a mystery religion. That's the same phrase he's using here. And what he's trying to explain to them is say, listen, I'm about to operate with you on an initiation basis. For example, if you're in, you're going to begin to start understanding things. But if you're merely standing on the outside, I'm going to start getting really confusing to you. That's all he was trying to initiate them into. Right. So the Mysterion, the secrets of heaven. And you go, well, that's that's weird really you just did it what's communion are you guys all following with me it's mysterion it's the idea can you imagine coming in and some of you are in this place you've walked in you don't know anything about jesus you've never been to church before and now everybody's using miniature stuff how weird is that little cups of juice why got little crackers it's all about man these people don't eat very much that's so odd okay it's never going to fill you up you're never going to get enough Right. But all of a sudden, all the rest of us are like, oh, yes, it represents Jesus' body and represents his blood. Okay, how do you know that? That's an initiation thing. You're on the inside. You get it. The outside doesn't get it. But it's super deep to you means nothing to them. That's all Jesus is telling you. We are now stepping into a mysterion time where I now have to communicate to you differently because I was rejected by the leadership of Israel. Does that make sense? All right, we move forward. He said, consider carefully what you hear and how you listen. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have what he has, even what he thinks he has, Luke says, will be taken from him. That's called the law of momentum or the law of habit. What does he mean? He said, if you want to be near me, I'm going to keep revealing things to you, and it's going to start snowballing. But if you sit back from the outside just to throw stones at me, you're going to get further and further and further away. Sheer law of habit, right? We all realize one commentator said this. He said, you all know that when you fail in a temptation, it's easier to fall next time. Because it's kind of like, well, I already blew it last time. Now I've developed a habit where my body's like, and we're going to do it again, right? But if you resist temptation one time, it makes you stronger to resist it the second time. You build on momentum. He said the same rule applies here. If you remain near me, you'll know more about me. He moves on. He says this. This is why to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that though they may be ever seeing, they do not perceive. Though ever hearing, they do not hear or understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn, be forgiven, and I would heal them. So, this is where God is working along with what man is doing. Man has locked his heart down and Jesus said, we're not playing a game here. You're walking in, you're proud, you're arrogant, you're shut off from me. I'm not working with you anymore. We're done. And he stepped back. That was the significance of them shutting him out and calling him demonic. All right? But blessed are your eyes, he says to his disciples, because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see. But they didn't see it. They longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. And Mark says, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Okay, why is that important? Jesus' point is to get people to understand. His point is not to be cryptic. So what do the parables do? Well... It reveals to the inside and conceals to the outside. It serves a dual purpose. But his point to those that want to know him is, Hey, you guys, I'm trying to explain it to you. Can I make this any more obvious? Ask me, I'll tell you. I'm not trying to keep anything from you. I'm trying to reveal to you what the kingdom of God is like. So he begins to explain the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower that whole seed thing where it fell on all those places. He said, let me tell you what that means. That was kind of a fancy story to tell you this. Once again, compiling Luke, Mark, and Matthew. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? In other words, that was an easy one. Boy, are you stupid. Okay. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. The seed is the word of God, the gospel. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, as soon as they hear it, the evil one, the devil, Satan, comes and snatches the word away that was sown in their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, you ever known anybody that's like that? Share the gospel, they go to church, they hear this amazing message of Jesus Christ, and they leave and they go, yeah, I didn't get it. I'm out. I have no interest in that. I don't even know what was going on. I only went because you asked me to. Okay, that's those folks. The indifferent. He said, there's really no point because your heart is so hard, the minute he gives you the gospel, it bounces on the surface, can't soak in. Satan's going to swoop in, boom, nail it and take it away. Because now all of a sudden the Jews are like, what do you mean Satan's going to be? Really? He's like, he's like here now? He's messing with us? They didn't understand that fully, and Jesus is revealing new stuff to them. They're thinking, oh, well that's not good, that can't be good. Yes, if your heart is hard, it makes it easy for Satan to sweep down and steal the stuff away, so you cannot grow. That's kind of the point. Then he moves on. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is a man who hears the word at once, receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. He believes for a while, but in the time of testing, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Anybody met anyone like that? seen that my whole ministry life. People that just get pumped up in a message i'm in i'm in they're all excited they start running around screaming at everybody to get saved everyone in their family they irritate and then all of a sudden they're gone you're like aren't you a believer yeah i'm out of that That that's a phase you're like what do you mean it's a phase it's not a phase that's life overhaul yeah i know there's so much stuff going on i don't know all of a sudden they start getting heat for it inside they felt tension outside they felt tension they just said it's not worth it i'm gone That's the second one. What's the third one? The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is a man who hears the word, but as he goes on his way, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and riches, the desire for other things, and the desire for pleasures come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful, and he does not mature. How about that? Anybody know that person? Or is that you? Right? This is the whole idea of going, I'm in. This is exciting. I don't know how to fit Jesus into my life anymore. There's too much stuff going on. I'm just too busy. Okay, this is where we're wrestling in our culture right now. Okay, and this is where you insert the sermon about good versus best, right? Do you understand that Satan's whole point is if he can just get you to take it down a notch away from Jesus to something good, he wins? Okay, good is not the best. There's a lot of good things you can get involved in. You know how many men I know that have become workaholics for noble reasons? I've got to provide for my family, I've got to work hard, I've got to make sure. And then they live their whole life working so hard their kids don't have a dad. Okay, that's called going less. That's good, it's noble, but what's better is your kids to have a dad. It's settling, it's shifting down, it's having your sight on the wrong priority. So, the point is, there's a bunch of people that get all fired up for great causes and movements, even within the Christian church. They get enamored with a Christian subculture, but they've lost the sight of Jesus. They're doing so much for him, they're not with him at all. Satan would love that. If you just keep it away from Christ, he's fine. All right? That's kind of the point here. He said, but the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word and understand it, retain it, accept it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Do you see all that in Matthew? Nope. That's why we combine the accounts. There are four things that we must do to receive and be transformed by the word of God. Let me go through those again. Number one, you've got to be open to hear. In other words, you cannot walk in cocky and arrogant and just go, yeah, what's this kid going to teach me? Or the Bible, whatever, it's an old book, nobody really knows, we don't have any of the original copies, I don't care, I'll just read it for academics. Okay, you're not going to get anything out of it. I'm just going to tell you right now, you might as well just stop. Let's just back out until your heart's right. You have to be open to listen. Secondly, you need to understand and retain it. What's that mean? It means put a little effort into it, right? you got to want to know. you got to soak in it, meditate on it, try to figure it out, do some Bible study. We're talking a totally different culture, totally different time. It's going to require a little extra effort for us than it did for the first generation. we got to put some effort into it and then let it stick in there, right? If you just forget everything the minute you leave, that's not helpful. Third thing, what do we got to do? We gotta be willing to accept it as truth and act on it, not let pride and fear get in the way. You gotta act on it. Move as if it's a reality. And then the fourth thing, you gotta stick with it perseverance. A lot of people start out with Christianity, they're all fired up, and then all of a sudden they go, This is cramping my style, it's awkward, I don't know, I'm trying to develop new habits, this is weird, I don't wanna do this anymore. Okay. Everything new feels awkward at the beginning. You've got to realize, of course it's awkward. You're re-overhauling everything in your life. Yes, it's awkward. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's frustrating. But that doesn't mean you give up. You have to try on your new clothes. The jeans that you think are super comfortable now, at one time were awkward. The shoes that are your favorite now, at one time had to be broken in. It always works that way, but you've got to walk with Jesus over a period of time. You don't just give up because it's different. We move on. He said, then Jesus told him another parable. Let's pick it up in Matthew in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. What? Who does that? Okay, this really happens. Happens even to this day. What is it talking about? There's seed that you can sow, and you have to be a real jerk to do this. There's a seed that you can sow called the bearded darnel. And you sow it, literally looks like wheat seeds, grows up looking like wheat, and you can't tell the difference until it pops out. Once it pops out, you're like, that's not wheat. It's obvious. It's obvious. But you never know that. It's so identical, the Jews call it bastard wheat. Literally, that's their call, their name for it. Because it's identical, but it's not. And they're going, why would someone do that to ruin the other guy's harvest? In other words, if you don't want your neighbor to have a good harvest, you do it while he's sleeping. You just throw it in there and then just go, I'm out. Walk away. You just ruined this whole deal. Why? Because when they grow, they grow together and underneath they intertwine their root system. Well, you can't pull up one without pulling up the other. That's just mean, right? Well, that's kind of the point. So he said the story. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where'd the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because when you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What's the point of the parable? The point of the parable is simply this. Satan is doing a lot of work, too. And all the people that you see, you can't make a judgment on who's doing what because in all of us there are those that are following the lord and those that are not and you're not going to be able to tell the difference really easily we're going to look identical to one another so you don't have the discerning eye to figure it out until they sprout and then you go oh my gosh there's messed up people here okay once you realize that what are you going to do now as a pastor i got decisions to make right What do I go through and I go, you're bogus, you're bogus, you're bogus. You're out, you're out, you're out, you're out. I don't like you, forget you, you're weird. Is that what I'm going to do? Now we root out all those people, what's that going to do? It's going to tear apart the whole fabric of our community. You can't do that. Jesus said, back off, let me handle it. I know what I'm doing. I'll send the harvesters in and we'll sort it out in the end. Next verse. He told them another parable verse 31 the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field Though it is the smallest of all your seeds yet when it grows It's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and perch in its branches First of all is the mustard seed the smallest of seeds. Nope sure isn't You're like well is jesus wrong? He doesn't know his plants. Okay. no Is he talking about it as the smallest seed of a garden herb? Okay, well, yeah. Then, yeah, it's probably technically correct. However, that's not the point. We keep trying to look at this stuff for Western-minded details. They all talked about mustard seeds in their culture as a proverb. They always go, and you know, we always talk about mustard seeds as being the smallest. Well, even the one that we talk about being the smallest grows pretty big, right? And indeed, a mustard seed, as tiny as it is, grows up into a tree that's between 12 and 15 feet high. So it becomes this huge bush tree, and birds come in because they like the little black seeds it produces. And it fills up with birds. What's the point of the parable? Well, you can imagine that the disciples who have been doing this effort with Jesus for years are not seeing a lot of stuff going well. They've been rejected by senior leadership of Israel, everybody's on their case, and all the people that want to be around Jesus are around for the wrong reasons. They want to get healed or fed. They're probably going to get discouraged. He's telling them, hold on a second, we're starting out small, I get that. But wait, this thing's going to blossom and it will change the world. Is that true? Has Christianity changed the world? Yes. What calendar do we work off in America? It's 2008. As a matter of fact, it's 2008 in an awful lot of places. Why? Because that's when Jesus got rolling around. So here's the deal. Christianity, even how we think about women, how we think about children, how we think about slavery, how we think about all these major issues is affected by Christianity. Christianity altered the world all from one tiny little beginning. That's his point. He moves on. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. What does that mean? Well, the way they would bake is sometimes they would bake daily. And when they would bake daily, they'd take a little piece of dough from what they just made, set it aside, make their meal. Then the next day they'd take that little bit of dough that has yeast in it, mix it with a new batch, and it would work through the whole amount The purpose of talking about yeast is that yeast permeates. That's the only thing you need to know. Yeast has an ability to influence everything it touches. It will work out into everything. Now, if you want to look at it in a positive way, it's influential. If you want to look at it in a negative way, it's insidious. It goes in deep and begins to move. You can't even see it moving, and it absolutely infects. That's why almost every other time in the Bible when yeast is mentioned other than this story, it represents sin. Almost always, there's something wrong with it. Where Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. In other words, they're bad teaching because it's really going to infect you. Be very careful with that. Here is the only positive reference. But yeast is a neutral, right? It just means it's influential. All right, we move on. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables, verse 34. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. Now, this is Psalm 78, 1 through 3. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Can you explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field? He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Who's the son of man? Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom, meaning I have placed you all over the world as an infection agent, as a positive influence. We are those wheat seeds, the good seeds. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the hell reference. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in In the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. You ever heard the story about separating the sheep and the goats? Okay, we're also going to study one about fish, good fish, bad fish being separated. Those are all in Matthew. Matthew's the separator guy. The other guys don't talk about this stuff. This is kind of a gig for Matthew. Also, Matthew's big on gnashing of teeth. He talks about that a lot. A lot of gnashing in Matthew. I don't really know why, but he's kind of big on that. The kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then he went in his joy, sold all he had, and bought the field. That's odd. Why is he finding buried treasure? This is almost like a pirate parable, right? Where if you follow the map and find the X, you just start digging. It'll be awesome. Okay, why is he finding hidden treasure in a field in Israel? Because... Throughout the centuries, the Jewish people get beat up a lot. And they get moved out of their land a lot. You cannot carry everything with you when you're running away. So what they would do is they'd hurry up and they'd dig a hole, stick valuables in there, and cover it up, and hope that they would return later and find their stuff. Now, unfortunately, you don't always return. Right? Sometimes you get killed outside. So, what happens with your stuff? Well, here's the technical law in israel finders keepers losers weepers that's it if you find it up it's yours okay so the guy is working in a field for someone else bink hit something what's that oh my gosh whoa quick cover it up goes back out sells everything he has buys the field gets everything in the field that's the story next story is almost identical says this, again, the kingdom of heaven's is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and that was a big deal back then. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. The idea of all this is investment for the future, and it only has one major point. Jesus, the good news, is so valuable that it's worth selling everything you have and going all in. That's the only point of the parable. Now, everyone's going to try to make something else out of it, right? A pearl, like it's, com- it's created because of irritation. Well, the cross is totally irritating. So it was irritating Jesus, and as it irritated him, it created this amazing pearl. And then this pearl is the gospel and the redemption of mankind. Whoa! Maybe. That's not the point. Now, sometimes you're going to be right, and it'll preach, awesome, okay? And then you'll have this killer message, and everyone will go, you're so deep. Okay, you're making stuff up. All right, stop doing that. There's one major point. Take the major point, and then run with it, okay? The point is not an allegory. All right, we move on. It says this. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down. Collected the good fish in the baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Throw them in the fiery furnace where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing. Okay. There's two kinds of fishing in that area at that time. There's cast nets and drag nets. A cast net's far more specific and it's more sporty. What you do is you have a smaller net. Let's say maybe a net, I don't know six feet across you gather it up it's weighted on the outside and what you do is you either throw it from the shore frisbee style or from a boat the idea is you look for the schools of fish to go by when they start coming by you ha ha and you throw it at the fish it sinks down around them and then you draw it back up and pull it up now it's a little harder right but it's very specific you know there's a good school of fish you know what you're going to catch that's not this The second version is called a dragnet, much larger net. Okay, let's go maybe 10 feet across, bigger than that. And what you would largely do, it's a big rectangle, and it's weighted at the bottom. Usually, you get one side, your buddy in a boat on the other side gets the other side. You then row through and drag the net, that's called a dragnet. As you drag the net through, it creates a cone shape, and it starts scooping up everything in its wake. So it's good fish, bad fish, stuff you can eat, stuff you can't eat. You scoop it all up, haul in the load, and then go separate back on the shore. That's this. What's the point again? We've already talked about it. The point of the parable is, you know what? It's a complicated issue being in this world. You don't know who's legit and who's not. But let God sort it out. We have no idea. He's good at that. Let him do it. Quit making judgments is kind of the point. Verse 51, Jesus said, have you understood all these things? Yep, they said. So is God's point to conceal or reveal? Reveal. He even said, we're all in, right? Y'all get it? Okay, if you don't, ask me a question because I'll clarify. But we're all good, right? We understand what the kingdom of God is like? All right. Now, embracing that truth is a little harder, but we all understand, right? Then he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. What does he mean? For us, most of us are learning this stuff for the first time. So we only have new treasures. We put them out in our storeroom, meaning what we want to display to people and what we want to feel proud of and what we're excited about. But if you're an Orthodox Jew and your whole life, you've been taught the Old Testament. You've been taught what God was like from the Torah and the law and the prophets and the historical writings. You're looking at Jesus and go, what, do I throw all that stuff away? What, now you're telling me all the new stuff? Jesus is going, hold on a second. No, no, no. I've been the same yesterday, today, and forever. No, you've learned a lot about me in the Old Testament. That's golden. Hang on to that. But I'm also giving you new, amazing truths that you can put on the shelf right next to it. Kind of like you've always known that God was loving, but did you know he loved you to the point of death? Oh, okay, so we put God is loving and God loves me to the point of death right next to each other. Old Testament, New Testament. Does that make sense? In other words, there's some things in your life as you've been going through, you know about God that are true. God took you through an amazing pathway to get you here. Some of that stuff you need to hang on to. It's amazing. Some of it you got to get rid of. Maybe you came from a complete New Age background and there's a bunch of garbage in there that's kind of twisted about who Jesus is. you got to ditch that. But some of it is really true. Some of it is amazing about God. I'm not talking about the New Age movement. I'm talking about the way that God has, maybe as a child, He protected you and you knew that God was near you. Well, that's still true. You can hang on to that and say, my God loves me even when I didn't know him. And you put that on your shelf. Well, right next to it, you can put, and now I know him as my Lord and Savior. And you put that right next to it. That's the whole point. So what's the, what's the lesson about it? If we are going to engage with the word of God, there are some things we must do. And the majority of them is to soften our hearts and to listen. I don't think the Bible is as hard to understand as it is to accept, right? The difference between the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners was not intelligence. It was a difference of heart. You do not have to be a scholar to know God. You just have to be open. Many of you will come into church brilliant beyond belief and leave with nothing. And there will be little children that sit in our midst and take home eternal life. That's how God works. Have you prepared your heart? And are you willing to receive? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for a reminder of your kingdom. Explanation on what you are like. Encouragement as to our ministry. Challenge as to our lifestyles. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be the people that you desire us to be, the people that you died for, the people that you are motivating through the power of your Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis. May we be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.